Why, hello, listeners, and welcome to We Love the Love. My name is Mrs. Allardyce, and I am the ghostly presence in this week's film, Burnt Offerings. My role in the film is to engage in pranks and hijinks that terrorize the unfortunate residents of my mansion, and in that spirit for this week's episode, I even went so far as to cut out some of the audio, and in fact, removed one guest's audio entirely. But I am not without remorse, and I'd like to provide you with a contribution in return. Here and there, throughout this episode, I've added back some of the guest audio, answered some questions, offered some commentary, so if the dialogue sounds a bit strange, do not be alarmed, it's part of the program. Now sit back and enjoy We Love the Love's discussion of the 1976 horror classic, Burnt Offerings. So, Will. Yes? This movie is a very classic haunted house movie. Very much so. And haunted houses are a staple of the Halloween tradition. And I was just curious, after a month of spooky films, what is your favorite Halloween tradition? Um, I mean, these days, my favorite Halloween tradition is to watch scary movies. I really thought you were about to say watch scary movies and record episodes about them. I mean, a little bit, yes. <laughs> although these days we do all of that in September. Yeah, it, it doesn't feel as spooky as it should. But like, if I think back, like, when I was a small child, my favorite Halloween tradition was to go trick-or-treating dressed up as Big Bird. And I say that specifically because I was Big Bird for many years. Well, <laughs> you gotta switch it up. I don't know, you know, it was a, it was a great costume. It had a, a nice Muppets connection, <laughs> and I got candy. How old were you when you finally stopped being Big Bird? I mean, like, five. I did it Oh, for okay. many years when I was younger than that. I was picturing a, like eight-year-old dressed as Big Bird? No, by the time I was eight, I was insisting on, like, very specific Harry Potter costumes. So, like, Mm. I think that year is the year that I was one of the Weasley twins, and I had really latched onto the joke in the first book, where when the train is pulling away and Ginny is crying, they promise to send her a Hogwarts toilet seat, so it'll be like she's at Hogwarts. So I was walking around in, like, generic wizard outfit, but carrying a toilet seat. Wow. I mean, if you had turned the toilet seat into your trick-or-treat bag, that would have been great. That would have been really Lift the lid and force people to put the candy in the toilet seat. I mean, it's better than the ending I can only imagine J.K. Rowling wanted to write, which was, Goodbye, trans people don't exist and they're all evil. In the Fantastic Beast book, they're rated like 7x dangerous. Yeah. They look like women, but they're actually men. Just full lack of transparency. Well, my favorite tradition when I was younger is not a haunted house, but the haunted corn maze that I went to a couple times. It was at Uncle Shuck's Corn Maze and Pumpkin Patch down in Georgia. Is that short for something like Shuckley or Shuckleton? I don't know. We were just on a nickname basis. I don't actually know if there is an Uncle Shuck. I like to picture it. But their corn maze every year would be carved in a different pattern you could see from the sky. So one year it was like zoo animals. I remember that one. But the haunted maze was separate and it was one line and it spelled out boo. But it was run by the police academy. So they had just like an actual sniper rifle sticking out from the corn and put a bead on you. People with chainsaws running up behind you. The creepiest was a woman sitting in the corn who would stick her hand out and say, help me. 
uh, as you I walked mean, past. Rocks. Genuinely terrifying. The only time I've actually been scared doing something for Halloween. And as such, it remains my top activity. I would love to go back. Or to the Field of Screams in Maryland. I know there's one here that's supposed to be actually scary, too. Yeah, Field of Screams and the Haunted Forest. Are those the same, or are they two different ones? They're different places. Okay, well, maybe not this October. I'm a little busy. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Yeah. We could probably hold your wedding in the Field of Screams. Okay, yep, scrap it all. We're (laughs) moving venues. The after party, we all get in a bus and drive out to the Field of Screams. Yeah, and we just drink, like, fermented corn syrup. Screaming our heads off. Ugh. Tim, what is your favorite of the Halloween traditions? Yeah, my Halloween tradition is candy corn. Both eating it because it's delicious and also confronting and admonishing people who say it's not delicious. It's the best. I feel like candy corn is the culinary equivalent of Nickelback. And that 10% of people who say they don't like it are actually sincere about it. And then the other 90% are just parroting what other people have said and what's popular to denigrate. It's like just just like Far Away and Someday are great tracks. Candy corn is a great dessert slash snack. Have you and Lonnie talked about your love of Nickelback? Because she's the only other unrepentant Nickelback fan I can think of. I agree with you on candy corn, because I also think that candy corn is good, especially I love the candy corn pumpkins. Those are so much better because there's more candy per bite. I do want to shout out a Halloween tradition I have never partaken in, unfortunately, which is the hell house, not the haunted house. Are you aware of these? This is like the Christian one, right? Yeah, they're put on by churches, and instead of, like, monsters, you get to see people burning in hell for premarital sex. Drinking and driving is actually a common one now, which is a message I do stand behind. I'm trying to think of some others. There's probably some that are super homophobic. I'm sure. It's like walking through a haunted forest where, like, you know, you see somebody, like, reach out and grab you, or you see someone who's, like, been a victim of, like, a chainsaw attack. But instead, it's people acting out like... I'm in hell burning because I, like, had premarital sex. Yeah. I have not ever experienced this. No. I don't know how many there are. I think Billy Graham was the first person to do it. One of those big televangelists was the first Hell House host. But they sound very funny. But this is also coming from someone who really wants to go to the Creation Museum. But it's, like, $40 to enter. That's the thing. Like, I... Almost went one time, and then I was like, I don't want to give them that much money. Yeah, that I guess that's probably their way of weeding people like us out. But also, the Ark, the full-scale replica of the Ark, putting an insurance claim in for rain damage was very funny. Yes. Just objectively comedy. But I do think that's, like, the classic model of hell, right? That's Dante's Inferno. Like, here's the yeah. category <laughs> where everybody was a glutton. Dante's Inferno, mostly a burn book. Didn't mean that as a pun. Bible fan fiction that I've never read, but I had a class about, and there were, like, different, and we, like, had a map of hell that we looked at, and yet we never read any part of it. There's, like, a cutoff in it where, like, the first chunk of it, and I read this in high school, like, for class, the first chunk of it, I was like, this is great, and then, like, right at the point where in Dante's own life, his political party loses power and he gets kicked out of town, it just turns into, in each circle, like, Here's an obscure 14th century Italian politician, and he's the most evil person who ever lived, and here's why he's in hell. I do love the pettiness of that, though. Also, the inclusion of the Pope in hell is 
very bold, and I respect him for it. Yeah. All right. Speaking of the Pope. Speaking. Of, uh, okay, you got to start this episode because I need you to take this segue to its conclusion. Will. Um. Speaking of the Pope, uh, this movie also features some mysterious old people. <laughs> Is there a priest? Oh, yes. There is a priest. But anyway, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are rejoined by our very good friend, Tim to talk about the troubled marriage of the 1976 haunted house movie, Burnt Offerings. Just to start off, I gotta say that I love that the 70s horror is just American stereotypical suburban nuclear family life is hell and destroys everything around it. Yeah, it's hard not to think of, you know, I brought this up when we talked about Halloween 3 the other week, but like, again, thinking about the Stepford Wives. The Stepford Wives, Rosemary's Baby, this one, even Halloween. And of course, culminating, yeah, Halloween's about the suburbs. And then culminating in 1980, you've got The Shining, which is a movie I thought about a lot during this. Right. Yeah, I think very strong ties to The Shining. But I was like, it's almost a twist that it's the woman that goes crazy because of the house. Just because I feel after The Shining, at least, it's usually the man. Well, I guess even before, because Amityville Horror, the man goes crazy. Because a lot of it's responding to just the idea of spousal and child abuse becoming mainstream. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to sort of talk about how we feel the movie comes together. Because I, I do think there are parts of it that really work. But it's not something that fully congeals. <laughs> and that's also, you know, no disrespect to... Dan Curtis, but we're talking about a movie directed by Stanley Kubrick versus a movie directed by the guy who made most of the early episodes of Dark Shadows. This is Dan Curtis's only theatrical film that is not a Dark Shadows spinoff. Oh. Wow. That Smiling Hearst Driver was creepy. The Smiling Hearst Driver actually is why I know of this movie and why I then like was able to put it on the schedule and stuff. Because this movie is like infamous in my mom's family. Because I guess they must have, like, rented it or something. Or maybe it was on TV sometime. But one day my mom and some of her siblings watched this. And, like, when you know, when they were, like, kids. My mom would have been, like, a teenager. And my mom and her younger siblings were, like, fully freaked out about it. Especially by the chauffeur. And then one of her brothers, like, later that day, he, like, found, like, a chauffeur kind of looking hat and, like, wore a coat. And would, like, just kind of peer around corners with a creepy smile to freak them out. And so... To hear my mom talk about it for years, this was like the scariest movie that ever existed because it freaked them out so much. And so I watched this with like my whole family. We all like went up to my parents' house and we all watched it together in their basement. And yeah, I mean, the chauffeur is a weird thing in that I think what's fascinating about him is that he feels entirely separate from everything else that's going on in the movie. Yeah, it's not well integrated. And the stuff that I was reading online is mixed about whether or not he's in the book. A lot of sources say he is not in the book. The co-screenwriter, William F. Nolan, claims to have added him. And Hmm. there are other people who are like, no, the chauffeur is in the book. So I don't know. I haven't read the book. But 
the movie basically tells us that Oliver Reed has had weird nightmares and stuff about the chauffeur before. So it feels more like, for him, the house is resurfacing things that are already there, whereas for Karen Black, the house is sort of introducing new forces to her life. Well, it's also, the house is seducing Karen Black in, whereas it's, like, tormenting the others, which is an intrigue, because it's, like, there's a divide. It's putting a split between the family. Well, I think it's mostly, like, a muddled thing, the way the house affects them differently. There is something to that if we're looking at it as, like, the horror of the isolated nuclear family, where the house is this seductive prison to the wife, and it doesn't allow the husband to be present there. I think this movie is also responding to things in the air without as clear of a vision of how to address them as some of the other horror of this time. It feels like a guy is making a scary movie with the things that are in the, like, zeitgeist rather than critiquing the zeitgeist or anything. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, like, part of, like, the stock character of the spooky servant or spooky butler or chauffeur is, like, going back even further to an upper class in, a like, like a British society, for example, the threatening idea of like these are the servants who behave a certain way but you don't know what they're actually thinking and maybe they're murderous you know the butler did it trope is like Mm -hmm. what's really going behind the professional smile and the like dutiful bow this movie great example of if it's too good to be true it is (laughs) you're talking about this this dirt cheap beautiful house that they can rent you know Mark, it's too good to be true, not because it's haunted, but because their whole vacation is chores. Yeah, that too. Like, they do so much work on this house. The whole time we were watching it, my mom was like, that's not a vacation. It's truly an Airbnb situation 40 years, or, you know, 30 years before Airbnb started, where you're expected to, like, clean the house before you depart while paying a cleaning fee. And if it's cheaper than it should be, there's always a there's always a catch. So far, it doesn't seem houses doing murder. The only time they leave the house is the funeral, and that's weird. It sure is <laughs> from the, the, the get go. Betty Davis. Yeah, the funeral of uh, acclaimed star of the silver screen, Betty Davis, who by all accounts did not have fun making this movie. I doubt it. I don't think she knows how to have fun, though. Or I mean, That's the new. thing. You read the stuff that she said about making this movie, and you're like, it's hard to tell if people were mean to you or if you were Betty Davis. <laughs> Where, like, apparently she got in fights with Karen Black all the time because she felt Karen Black didn't show her the appropriate respect. And it's like, was Karen Black rude to her or is Betty Davis absurd? Yeah, I mean, I feel like Betty Davis would say, wow, Karen Black was so mean to me after Betty Davis was like, you awful bitch you were terrible in this scene how dare you and then karen black would respond in kind and she'd be like what a horrid woman yeah i had no idea she was gonna be in it until she showed up in the opening credits well when we planned this month of scary movies were you expecting four out of five of them to have blatant child deaths on screen okay so we got hocus pocus they kill emily at the start of the movie halloween three children's heads like explode we even see the full transformation into bugs of one right uh invisible man no children in in danger just adults in danger no real children in general yeah 
And then mother, of course, they eat a baby. Right. And then in this, a chimney falls on top of a, like, 10-year-old boy. Yeah. 12. Yeah, so four out of five. Four out of five. I did not plan for that. Especially considering the death of children is fairly rare in horror. Yeah, they uh, were not messing around. In these movies we picked largely at random. Yeah. Mother, of course, the most blatant. Yeah. I mean, that's a movie that's infamous for it. Right. Because otherwise... I mean, in Halloween 3, the kid isn't bloody or anything. He just becomes snakes. Turns into bugs, yeah. I actually, when you texted me that, I had forgotten that a girl died in Hocus Pocus. I was like, that's just child danger. And my wife was like, no, a a little girl dies and then she comes back as a ghost at the end of the movie. Yeah. Her essence is stolen by three witches. You know, we've been talking about the book that this is based on. And I think it's interesting to note that Burnt Offerings did not begin as a book. The movie was initially announced as, or at least the story was initially announced as, this is going to be a movie written by Robert Morasco, who eventually writes the book, and directed by Bob Fosse. Twist. (laughs) Like, coming right off of Sweet Charity, which is his first movie that's kind of a flop, he's like, you know what? I'm going to make a horror movie. I mean, even back then, they were cheap and made money. So you could see him reacting to a flop by being like, I'm going to make something that's not that expensive. I would love to see a Fosse horror movie. I mean... He made certainly some harrowing movies, but nothing that tips over into horror. He spent three months in development on it before Stanley Donan convinced him not to do it. And after that, Morasco turned his plan for the movie into a novel in 1973. And then that novel got adapted into this movie. Mark, did you watch Feud? I watched some of Feud. I did not finish Feud. So you didn't get to find out, like, is there any Burnt Offerings content in Feud? I did not. I cannot tell you if there's Burnt Offerings content, but I doubt it, because it's very focused on whatever happened to Baby Jane. Sure. Good movie. So they eventually, like, uh, Dan Curtis is hired to adapt this based on Marasco's novel. The novel actually starts with the family being in New York for a while, for like a third of the book before they go on vacation to this house. I mean... We'll get into this more when we talk about the believability, but the problem with doing these horror movies for the romance is, like, you only see them at their worst. Yeah, but I mean, we, like, in this, like, we see them arrive, we see their plan for what this time should look like. You know, Karen Black tells her husband, oh, good, you can get started on your PhD here. How old is he? I missed that line. It's been a few days. It's fine to do a PhD when you're older. It's just like, again, not a vacation. I think it's less of a vacation in their mind and more of, like, where they will live for the summer. Do you think she was a women's liber and then she was, like, had a job and is now reverting back into wearing old clothes and doing chores all the time? I mean, that's just the Stepford Wives, but, like... Right, yeah. I don't know that she was, like, going to meetings the way that Catherine Ross is before the Stepford Wives, but I think she was, like, working outside the house. Yeah, that twist would have made it more interesting to, like, see where they started. Because all we get is one car ride. I'm curious, where did you guys watch this movie? I did not have time to get to the library. Okay, because I rented it on Amazon, and then I texted you, Mark, to say the library has it, and you should check it out at the DC library if you can. Because I have a hard time fully evaluating the filmmaking in this movie, because I don't know about what you guys saw on Pluto TV. But the transfer on Prime Video, which is the only place to rent it digitally, is truly atrocious. 
it looks like it was scanned from like a VHS tape that had been played a lot. Based off of some reviews I saw, I don't know how much better it was on screen. Yeah, I know some of the reviews at the time, and this movie was not a hit. Like, it cost $2 million. It made, like, one and a half at the box office. It has come to, like, be kind of respected in horror circles for being an early example of, like, a 70s haunted house movie. But a lot of the reviews in 1976 are like, look, there's something here, but it, it looks like a TV movie. Mm-hmm. I think the overlighting is part of that. Yeah. It is to other movies what soap operas are to other TV shows. I think the most interesting thing going on is, like, there are a lot of, like, kind of weird low angles, especially when the Allardyces are on screen. It creates, like, some weird sense of them looming over the people they're talking to. But that's also only in a small portion at the beginning of the movie. I do love the, like, the house gets nicer as the people get more tortured. Well, and as bloodshed, the house eats blood. Yeah. But, you know, especially like Anne Elizabeth dies and things dramatically improve. That is a cool idea. Yeah. Obviously, some of the flapping shingles were a little ridiculous. So, yeah, Burnt Offerings, like I said, it was not a financial hit. It was not particularly a critical hit, although it has been reclaimed somewhat in the decades since then. It was a hit at the fourth Saturn Awards. The Saturn Awards are so weird, what they choose. They won uh, Best Horror Film, Beating Out the Omen and Carrie. Okay. Best Director for Dan Curtis, and Best Supporting Actress for Betty Davis. I feel like the Nebula and the Hugo and the Locust all make a lot more sense than the Saturns. Of course, yeah, the Saturns are are goofy as heck. The Saturns are the Golden Globes of the sci-fi world. No, the Saturns are closer to, like... I can't remember what it is. There's some, like, film awards in Southern California that happen, like, in, like, January, and they're on a beach, and it's kind of like, they just kind of give everybody an award that they <laughs> that they want to show up to their thing, like, even more so than the Golden Globes. The Saturns feel like that. Yeah. Maybe they just aim to get who they think will show up. If Betty Davis showed up to the Saturn Awards, someone got physically injured as a result. <laughs> Some, like, grimy 70s nerds with, like, bring back Star Trek posters. Some poor production assistant got a glass to the face. She was not sober based off of the bits of feud I saw. Of course, also famously not sober, Oliver Reed, who plays the husband in this movie. Ooh. <laughs> Extremely so sweaty husband. sweaty. The house is, like, in the Bay Area. It's not... It shouldn't be that hot. The house is in Oakland. The movie is set, allegedly, in New York. They're sweating like they're in the bayou of Louisiana. This house might be actually cursed, by the way. The whole thing was shot on location at a real house in Oakland that's now in a park. and You can visit it. But in the 19th century, this guy, Alexander Dunsmere, built it as a wedding gift to his wife. And then he died on the honeymoon. And his wife died 18 months later. If I don't have a house from Nick by the time this episode comes out, I'll be very disappointed. Uh, do you, is there like, do you want this house specifically? I want him to build me a house. I don't know where. Yeah, I want to be the one who causes the house to be cursed. I want my mysterious death to be the first rather than in a line of mysterious deaths. There would have to be a few more mysterious deaths after me, but the curse is always named after the first death. 
or the one that's so unexplainable. Like, there's no reason this body should have died. I think I would just want to be, like, the creepy painting whose eyes move. See, that usually is the first person to die. Yeah, I guess so. Um, Like I said, uh, Betty Davis also did not like having Oliver Reed around. She would only refer to him as that man and only talk to him when they shared dialogue scenes. And after production ended, she called him possibly one of the most loathsome human beings I have ever had the misfortune of meeting. It's just so hard to know whose fault it really is, knowing how Betty Davis was as a person. Right, and it's a thing of like, I have heard more things about Oliver Reed being obnoxious than I have about Karen Black, but Betty Davis reacts to everybody this way. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I hear about old Hollywood and these like diva leading ladies, I think about that tweet that says like, woman does some psychotic shit, her gaze, honestly, work. Because (laughs) every so often I think, like, you go, and then I'm like, that is toxic behavior. Like, when Faye Dunaway threw something at an assistant and called him the F-slur, part of me was just like, you go, Faye Dunaway. Mark, that's bad. (laughs) I know. But it's so funny because of who she is. It's comedy, but it's also impacting someone's life. But also that PA, I think, said it was really funny. Well, Oliver Reed, like I said, there's more obnoxious stories about him than there are about Karen Black. My favorite Oliver Reed story is the fact that he became, like, the first actor to be posthumously digitally created because he died during production of Gladiator and they, like, hadn't shot a bunch of his stuff, so they had to, like, hire a company to make him on a computer for some of those scenes. And this is because at this point, like, he was well known to be, like, a pretty serious alcoholic and... Ridley Scott made him promise that he wouldn't drink during production. And then he died? Well, no. Oliver Reed took that to be, you can't drink on days where shooting is happening, so drinking on the weekends is fine. Oh, God. And one night, they're shooting Gladiator in Malta. One night, he's at a bar, and he meets up with, and, like, he encounters, like, a bunch of sailors who are, like, on shore leave in Malta. And it's unclear who started it, but a drinking competition commenced. Yikes. During which, according to witnesses, Oliver Reed drank eight pints of German lager, a dozen shots of rum, half a bottle of whiskey, and several shots of Hennessy. Oh my god. He won the drinking competition, and after that, he won five arm wrestling competitions against these sailors, and then he had a heart attack. Who is this man? Right. (laughs) Like, that's what happened to Hemingway. Especially because it's sailors. This man was booked and busy. I just pulled up his filmography. Good lord, he was in a lot of movies. Yeah, he was a star. I know, but it's just so many. Also, speaking of curses at Dunsmuir House, the stunt double for Oliver Reed, during the thing at the end where he, like, flies out the window and crashes into the car, he almost missed the padding. Like, his trajectory was off when they launched him out the window. And so the rest of the stunt crew was, like, running around beneath him like the clowns in Dumbo trying to make sure he landed in the right spot. My god. I want to see this house now. Next time I'm visiting Nick's parents, we're gonna go. You should do it. They left the greenhouse there, which they built for the movie. Oh. Do they have the pool still? I believe they do. Now, the pool actually was out of commission at the time production started, and so they had to fix it up enough to fill it with water. I don't know if they left it full of water. It's a nice pool. Yeah. I mean, some bad things happen there. But, you know. I'd swim in it. (sighs) 
All right. So should we talk about the romance of this movie? Let's do it. All right. So every week we break down the romantic plot line into five points to guide conversation. Tim, will you take us to point number one? So the central romance of this film is between Ben, played by Oliver Reed, and Marion, played by Karen Black, who've been married 13 years and they have a young son, maybe 10 years old, named Davey. Point one of five involves Ben and Marion driving with Davy to a summer home they're considering renting. They meet the owners, who are an elderly and spooky pair of siblings, one of whom is played by Burgess Meredith. The house is clearly not what they were expecting. It's far spookier and more run down, and they weren't expecting it to be in such disrepair. They're also taken aback by the request from the owners that they take care of the place during the rental period, especially the request that their mother, who they say is a shut-in who spends all of her time in her room, be provided with three meals a day. It's worth noting at this point that Marion is far more on board with this than Ben. Marion has mixed feelings, but thinks, you know, maybe they could enjoy taking part in the upkeep. And Ben, on the other hand, wants absolutely nothing to do with it. So they say they need some time to think about it. They drive home. They discuss it at home. Ben is still adamantly opposed. Marion's in favor of trying to convince him. And then there's a cut, which I think is pretty clever, to the owners receiving a phone call from the couple. You only see the owner's side of it but you can tell that the couple's accepted. And it's interesting because this implies, it doesn't show the friction in their relationship, but it implies it. And the inference without seeing quite what's happening is that Ben is here because he's given in to Marion's request. She didn't convince him to come on the merits. She didn't say it'd be fun or it'd be good for their son or whatever. He just gave in because he decided to let his wife win this one. Yeah, I mean, basically just what we got from that conversation of them at home is like, he realizes it's clearly important to her that they go off and do this thing. She tells him, like, I really want to do this. It's important to me that we do this. But if you feel really strongly, fine, we won't. And clearly he caves based on that. She's already entranced by the house. Well, she saw all the pictures of the house looking the same over the decades. It looks beautiful and the same. I just enjoy the creepy people who live at the house. I like thinking about what it means for the Allardyce twins to... Be living alone in the creepy house with Dub Taylor as their weird butler groundskeeper. And their supposed mother who is 85 and looks 65 but refuses to leave her room. Yeah, actually, we haven't talked. So, you know, part of the mystery of this whole thing is that the mother is going to be staying in the house while this young family is there. And they need to bring up food for her so that she can eat. But she won't come out. They don't need to bother her. And... Like, I'm curious what you all think about the rules of how old Mrs. Allardyce works. Like, is there anybody in the room until Karen Black goes in there? I kind of think no. My thought is when the old Mrs. Allardyce dies is when they have to start over and look for a new one. Yeah. So do we think that magic is tied to her children? Like, are they locked at a certain age? Do they only age when they don't have a mother in the house? Hmm. I don't know how long, like, how often they need to do this, whether the lifespan of the new Mrs. Allardyce's is one year and they do this every summer. I think it's relative to how young the person is when they become Mrs. Allardyce. The children are very excited when they see how young this family is. Like, so I don't know if they'll need to do this again for a while, but I don't know if the twins are, like, immortal and also tied to the spirit of the house. Because by the end, she's not Marion anymore. She's basically just the house, and the house is her. 
Yeah, I think the twins are almost like these like weird little demons that draw their energy from the house, but they need to entice someone to be trapped there so that they can get their power. So, Tim, where are we for point number two? Point two is the pool at nighttime scene. And although it occurs fairly early in the film, it's really the romantic climax. So between points one and two, there's an important incident where Ben and Davey are playing in the pool. They're roughhousing, if you will, with Ben throwing Davey around playfully. And then all of a sudden, something happens, and Ben is overcome with a strange impulse that leads him to start dunking Davey uncontrollably to the point where he's clearly going to kill him if he doesn't stop. Yeah, and like hitting him too, like beating him out of the water. He only stops because Davey manages to hit him with an object in the pool, which snaps Ben out of this trance. And Aunt Elizabeth is watching, I believe. Yeah, there are calls for Karen Black, for Marion to come down. But part of the weird phenomenon is that like this is happening when she's taken food up to leave for Mrs. Allardyce. And when she's up there, she never really hears anything else going on in the house or on the grounds. She's just fully entranced by the room. And so afterwards, Ben feels terrible about it. And point two is when he wakes up in the middle of the night and goes down to the pool for a swim, kind of as a therapeutic measure to try to overcome the trauma he now feels about this pool. And Marion falls in. He is a very attentive father. He is like much more involved in his son's life than in a lot of 70s movies. So they jump in the pool together. They start getting a little romantic with each other. It seems like he's trying to have sex in the pool. They then walk back to the house, continue to be romantic. They lie down on the lawn together. It seems like they might do a little more, but Marion all of a sudden notices a red light emanating from Mrs. Allardyce's room on the third floor and starts panicking, telling Ben to stop. And so that not only kills the mood for the evening, but it's also probably the last time where these two are really a functional romantic couple, not only who are in their right minds, but who clearly still love each other and want to be together as a couple seems like the reaction by the house here at least a little bit is about preventing them from reestablishing intimacy in their relationship it's trying to keep that divide up in place and i think you're right that even though this comes relatively early in the movie it is kind of a climax of the romance this is the moment or at least mm-hmm. the turning point like this is the point where they could have reestablished their closeness and instead they wind up more isolated This is the pivot point of the doom of this relationship. Yeah, this is the moment where their last true escape possibility. But instead, they're trapped and it ends as it does. Point three of five, arguably more of a phase than a point. It's the growing apart of Marion and Ben to the point where Ben decides to take Davey away from the home and from Marion. And the lead up to this is Marion's behavior is growing more and more bizarre. She spends more time in Mrs. Allardyce's room. She screams at Davy for breaking a vase. She skips out on the funeral of Ben's Aunt Elizabeth so that she can watch Mrs. Allardyce. Yes, which is notable because like, it's a symbol of the corruption of the house, where when she arrives, she's very energetic. She's painting. She makes all these cracks about how she's a lush, and she's a lush and a lech, I think is what she says. She's very chipper and fun. She implies she's having a lot of sex. And very quickly, kind of after point number two, once they're locked into the house, her health starts to decline precipitously. She's tired a lot of the time. She's feeling sick. Eventually, she can't really get out of bed. And then she dies. It's like she ages 30 years Mm -hmm. in the span of a couple of days. But Karen Black Marion doesn't go to the funeral. Because she can't leave Mrs. Allardyce alone. Right. And that's that's what leads him to say, "With, with or without you, I'm leaving the house. 
he tells Marion he's leaving with Davy and with or without her. She doesn't join, and so he takes off in the car. But as he's exiting the driveway to the home, a tree suddenly falls and blocks the road. And like a much milder form of the equivalent Evil Dead scene, the tree seems to take on a life of its own as it traps Ben. He gets trapped between the branches. He's trying to move the tree first and then just dig himself out. So finally, he gets back in the car, gets in the car, and starts trying to override this fallen tree in the road, just maniacally. At the same time, Marion runs out to the car, and as Ben looks at her, he hallucinates that she's become the smiling chauffeur from his nightmares. So that's enough to put him in a catatonic state, which leads Marion to insist that he stay in the house indefinitely, and that she needs to provide the care in order to heal him. Yeah, and to be clear, like, they had the doctor come, but like, Marion has like decided to let him die, basically, because the doctor said you should take him to a hospital. Yeah, but she can't leave Mrs. Allardyce alone. It is like one of the movie's creepier triumphs when Marion shows up at the car as he's like trying to drive away. And you do feel this real sense of doom just seeing her arrive. Like her transformation, I think, does play really well. I don't think every scene always works or is always as creepy as you wish it were. But I think the increasingly unsettling behavior that she has is done really well. The house has them. So point four or five, the last hope for their relationship. This is kind of the uh, the dead cat bounce of the relationship. So Marion sets up Ben by the edge of the pool one day while Davy is swimming. Marion goes inside up to the room. This is where the house kind of decides to twist the knife on this family, which might be a mistake on its part. So the pool basically turns into a wave pool while Davy is in it, which is throwing Davy back and forth. And once again, he's about to drown. So Ben tries to get up, but is still in this basically cataconic state and is unable to summon up even the ability to move to get into the pool and rescue Davy. But Marion from inside sees what's happening from inside the house, tries to get outside through the door, but finds that it's locked and smashes a window instead to sprint outside and rescue Davy. Ben settles back to normal and they all agree to leave the house then and there. So that's point four. And I I think where the house kind of makes a mistake, going back to what we were saying about gender roles, is by inadvertently appealing to Marion's maternal instincts. It's interesting that we've seen Marion become more, you know, domestic and filling this stereotypical standardized gender role throughout the movie, prioritizing housework and caregiving or basically paying attention to her husband and her son and actually showing love and affection. But seeing her son in peril is a bridge too far and his life is more important than everything else, even at this point. The power of motherhood almost triumphs again. And it's a, it's a ha- genuinely harrowing scene because you can watch Oliver mm. Reed sweating as he always does. It's the main thing the movie asks <laughs> so him to do. So sweaty. <laughs> sweating, trying to heave himself out of the chair and over to the pool where you know he will himself drown because there's no way he could swim in this condition. And there's a real sense of relief when Marion arrives. You're like, oh my gosh, they did it. Like, maybe they can get away and have this haunting specter behind them. And maybe the movie will end not with their dooms, but with the arrival of the next family. Point five of five is a classic way to conclude a romance, uh, which is defenestration. So as the family's preparing to leave right after point four, Marion decides to return to the house to inform Mrs. Allardyce that the family is leaving and to give her their phone number in case they need anything. She is talking like the old Marion at this point. 
And like you said, it's a reasonable ask. You're, you have been feeding this woman. Now you're not going to be. She's going to have to take care of herself or get her s- children to come. And you can see why Ben lets her out and waits for her instead of just driving off. So not only is, is the quest reasonable, but he also wants to believe that this is coming from Marion, his wife that he's known for 13 years. Not Marion, this entranced person that's recently the victim of this house's curse. So after a bit, though, after Marion doesn't return quickly, Ben decides to go up to the sitting room of Mr. Mrs. Alderdice. He bangs open the door to her bedroom. Uh, before this, we'd actually never seen the inside of the bedroom or even seen the door to it open. Inside the bedroom is an old woman sitting in a chair with her back to Ben. So Ben assumes this is Mrs. Alderdice. He approaches her. He asks where his wife is, but she turns around. He realizes this isn't Mrs. Alderdice. This is Marion, aged up about 40 years and clearly possessed. And we have seen little hints of her aging, like, early on in the house. She mentions that she's getting gray hair. And she, like, is kind of into it. She's like, yeah, like, some other women in my family that I really admired went gray super young. So I'm just like them. So she tells him, I've been waiting for you, and throws him out the window, where he lands in the family car. So this pretty much concludes their relationship. Um, You know, once someone dies, there's not really anywhere to go from there. But as a postmortem... Uh, Their son runs out of the car and is crushed under a pile of bricks that falls from the top of the house. And none of the family is, as far as we know, ever seen again. He could have made it away. He, like, stood and watched the chimney fall on him. He was freaked out. He just watched his dad fly out the window. He could have kept running. That chimney took a while to fall. He wouldn't have made it, but he did stay. It took a little while. He screamed a little too long for me. Well, how are we feeling about the romance, Tim? Do you find this uh, romantic relationship believable? So I, I interpret the question of whether the romance makes any sense as asking if the romance makes sense, assuming everything else. And so in this movie, it's a little bit tricky to distinguish the romance itself from everything else, especially the supernatural elements, given that the movie is about two people who are start out in love, but become mentally, emotionally, and spiritually transformed so that they're essentially different people and not the same romantic partners to each other. But at the beginning of the movie, I think you can see how these people got together, what they saw on each other. And, you know, those things do continue throughout the movie in bits and pieces. And I think at the end of the day, it makes sense that they stay together given everything that happens. So I'd give it an eight. Yeah. You know, you think about Mm -hmm. their disagreement on whether or not to go to the house in the first place and the way they talk about it. It does feel like two people in a relationship who are both trying to figure out the balance between what they want individually and respecting what their spouse wants. And they're doing their best to navigate all of that in good faith. And yeah, it's not a thriving marriage, but I agree that it's believable. I feel okay with an eight. Yeah, let's let's call it an eight. Uh, Do you think either of them is dateable? Yeah, they both seem fun in their own way. He's so sweaty, though. (laughs) Just had to, it had to be mentioned, I don't think it's a deal breaker. He's not a dry man. But he is a wet, wet man. Obviously, this couple will not stay together because Oliver... Defenestration. (laughs) Yes, was violently defenestrated. So, if you had to pick one person from this movie, whom would you choose and why is it Aunt Elizabeth? (laughs) I mean, I I love a lush and a lech, so I was gonna go with Aunt Elizabeth. Yeah, and also, like, she has a lot of hobbies. She likes to share those hobbies. She's like, yeah, I'm going to take the kid. We're going to go, like, paint on a cliff. She was very cool. She seems like a fun time. 
I would not want to date Betty Davis. No. And I don't think she would want to date me. No. Like, look, every relationship has its benefits, its drawbacks. Every partner has their assets and liabilities. And, you know, all else aside, Marion did a great job of cleaning the house, taking care of the house, making meals, uh, you know, even at the end, if she would throw me out a window. Now, here's a question. A lot of movies we cover are made into musicals. Should there be a Burnt Offerings musical? I think this should be a musical if and only if, so that when we get the smiling chauffeur on stage, he sings his own song. And if he doesn't sing, he can be a kind of sneak that dips on and off stage. He'd basically be like the puck of the whole production. Which just feels like a whole betrayal of the smiling chauffeur who has no lines. Just a one-man show about the smiling chauffeur. I'm interested in the idea of a haunted house musical, but... I would almost rather see like, like I'd rather see a Crimson Peak musical than a Burnt Offerings musical because that has the kind of like elevated outrageous emotions mm-hmm. that would be fun to see go like operatic. Whereas, I don't know, this movie is so reserved. Yeah, I don't really see it, honestly. Andrew Lloyd Webber can write the Crimson Peak musical. So we'll get started on that. We'll give you updates on our Crimson Peak musical. Tim will be writing the music. Will and I can work on the book. We will premiere on Broadway, I'm guessing, no later than 2025. Yeah, and by that time, the Back to the Future musical will probably have run its course, so we can just take that space. Perfect. But until then, and until next week, I think that's about it for this episode of We Love the Love. Next week, we are going to be continuing to talk about marriage in crisis as we look at the classic Christian direct-to-DVD hit, all those things are true, Fireproof. (laughs) Will Mark start his marriage with the Fireproof Challenge? We'll find out. Oh, God. Now I have no idea what that means. Uh, I'm dreading next week, but until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at LoveTheLovePod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at LoveTheLovePod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, or do it on Spotify, too. All right, last question. Tim, what is the best piece of dating advice we got from Burnt Offerings? If you're going to romance your spouse on the lawn in the middle of the night, make sure you do it out of view of Mrs. Alderdice's bedroom window. (laughs) Uh, I was going to say something similar. I was going to say starting with kissing in the pool is good, but leaving the pool before sex is better. I mean, yes, don't have sex in a pool. Yeah. I was going to say, if siblings who seem a little too close invite you to stay in their house, don't do it. That just is good life advice in general for all of us. Everyone got a weird vibe from those siblings, right? Yes, you are not the only one. I wasn't thinking of Crimson Peak for no reason. (laughs) Okay. Well, (laughs) there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.